Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. And today we're going to be talking about closing argument. This is probably going to last a few episodes. John, you've put together an extensive set and several sets of notes. So I'm going to kind of follow your lead. Yeah, just generally thinking about closing argument in a very general sense. What is it you want to accomplish? What's the purpose of closing argument? And you got to remember, closing argument isn't about rehashing and and you know all the facts that the jury has already heard more times than they wanted to hear. Most of the key facts in the case would have been brought up multiple times by one side or the other. And really, the one thing to keep in mind, the one thing the jury hasn't been told is the law. Yeah. Really, think about the concept. Wouldn't it be a little more efficient if you said, okay, here's the law, here are the elements of the case, here's what we need to prove, and then they get to hear the evidence and see how it fits in. But that's not the way it works, at least not in Missouri and most of the states that I'm aware of. Well, no. And I mean, you could probably read more instructions to the jury, but doing a verdict director before the evidence is presented is impossible because the judge has to hear the evidence presented to decide which submissions are appropriate based on that evidence. So, you know, the jury hears a whole case and then you get up and go, hey, by the way, here's the law that you yeah. And I've had cases where because of legal issues that were ruled on during the trial, much of what the defense did was irrelevant. And right. You got to go. Exactly. That's yeah. the law. That's or, right. right. <laughs> exactly. And not just irrelevant, but I had a case years ago where Is it, it the was the boxing case. Yeah. And it was a case where we were blaming the landowner for another party's conduct because it was considered to be ultra hazardous conduct. And what happened throughout the course of the case is the defense was blaming this third party. It was a boxing case where they were promoter, didn't get an ambulance. My client got knocked out, subdural hematoma, and it was a delay in getting him to the hospital, getting him a treatment. He passed out in the locker room. There wasn't an ambulance. And I think there was a ringside doctor. There wasn't an ambulance. And so he gets knocked out in the ring. Anyway, the promoter, I think the promoter, they denied coverage on the promoters, maybe what had happened because it was an incident that happened, they alleged, during the boxing contest. But it was at a hotel in St. Louis, and I alleged it was ultra-hazardous activity. So a premises liability Yes, claim. premises liability claim. And the defendant in the case, the hotel, continued to blame the promoter throughout the course of the trial. And at the end of the day, the jury instruction read something like, if you believe the promoter didn't get an ambulance, then the defendant <laughs> hotel is yeah. responsible. That's and it right. Was like, I read, yes. Let's read that yes. again. And so the jury was being pummeled by both sides that it was the promoter's fault for not getting an ambulance. But at the end of the day, the promoter not getting an ambulance made the defendant, you know, hotel responsible. So in any event, the issue is, you know, they haven't heard the law. They don't know how all of these facts, you know, you told your story. You Hopefully you got them thinking about who should win, no matter what the law says. Yeah, I don't think in closing... You've already convinced the people who they want to win or not to win. You're not changing any minds yourself as a lawyer. You might be able to arm other jurors to change people's minds. Yeah, and mind I think what I would say is I've come up with three main purposes of close. There are others, you know, there are subcategories of each of these, but just generally three main purposes of close, as you just said. Number one is arm the jurors. In other words, the jurors who are already with you and they think you should win the case, your client should win, give them the path, show them how the law supports that claim. 
and supports a verdict in favor of your client. And if you hear somebody back here saying this, that the defendant is arguing or the plaintiff is arguing, depending on which side you have, just remember X, Y, and Z. You're giving them ammo, right, to fight back. Yes. And then I think the second is explain the law. And it's kind of one and two are very much related because you want to arm the jurors with not just the facts, but with the law, with right. the jury instructions. Somebody instructions. says this, that's not the law. Point them back to this instruction. Read it. And the third is engage them. And what I mean is you want them to recognize that there's more at stake in most cases than compensation to your client. Whatever conduct is at issue, if the defendant's conduct hasn't changed, they're still doing the same thing the same way, whether it's not putting a warning on a product or not doing what they need to be doing in an emergency room or triaging a patient. Letting the jury understand, and hopefully you've done that throughout the case, that their decision in this case is actually going to go beyond compensating your client, but will make it safer for others going forward, which is what the whole case is about anyway. The majority you are of the waking up tomorrow having set or not set the community safety standard. Let's start talking the first one about arming your jurors. That's the first thing that I want to talk about. Arming your jurors at the end. Why do you do that? Well, there are things out there, studies, comments, books, articles that say a certain percentage of jurors make up their mind after opening. Maybe it's half or a third, a whatever it is. I personally believe that in certain jurisdictions, a significant portion, maybe a third of the jurors make up their mind about your case before they leave their house. Yeah, before they walk into the <laughs> right? courthouse. So, but anyway, whether it's before they leave their house or whether it's after opening or in the middle of opening, by the time you get to close and all the evidence is in, you can rest assured that most of those, 90% of those jurors are locked in. I mean, they've made Unliability. up liability. Yeah. yeah. I think you can still persuade people about the value of damages, but, but whether they want you to win or not, if you haven't convinced anybody by that point. Yeah. Basically, the time to persuade is gone and you're really wasting your time trying to persuade jurors who are already with you. They just want your help in showing them how they need to convince others to get to the verdict. Yeah. And what I like to do in closing, one of the first things is to describe the jurors' jobs to them in detail. In other words, here are the instructions. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to go back and elect a four-person, and then you're going to have to answer certain questions. And everybody gets a chance to talk. You get to tell the other jurors what your position is on particular issues. And you need to be able to do a good job of articulating, describing, explaining your position. You tell them your job requires you to argue with, debate, and convince others of your position. That's part of your job as a juror. And then what you do is you tell them, look, right now what I'm going to do with the instructions and with the facts in the case is I'm going to help you do that job. I'm going to let you know what it is that my client needs to prove to win the case and how the evidence supports that. Yeah. I like to tell them while doing that as well that, you know, you have a job, but you also have rights back there. And one of your most important rights is to require the other people that you're trying to have an honest deliberation with to require them that they follow this law you were just given. Yeah. And I think, too, you know, it's important to let them know that everybody gets a chance to speak their mind. Everybody should have an opportunity to talk and, you know, compromise. I mean, that's part of what it's about. If somebody says, OK, now it's really hard to get out of this building and you got to leave a different way than where you came in. And let me show you how you need to get out. OK, well, you got my attention because yeah. I don't want to get lost. And I think when you tell them that in the beginning of close that this is your job, this is what you're going to have to do especially those jurors that are strongly in favor of your client's position that want you to win. They want you to win and they want you to tell them how to help them convince others of that same position. So I think overall, it certainly gets them motivated and it does get their attention in the beginning. You know, the other thing too, to keep in mind is when you take extreme positions in any time in the case, whether it's in opening or whether it's in close, for instance, if a lawyer gets up and says, anybody who thinks that is ridiculous, 
Well, you might have four or five jurors or, or more than that who are thinking that, okay? So you got to be careful about that too. There are times that allow you to get a little bit more emotional about it. There are times in close when that would happen. I think in the beginning, that's not the time. I think you start out explaining what they need to do, explaining the instructions, how those work, what they say, how the evidence fits into it. I think all of those things help you get started in close. Yeah, I agree. You're framing the rest of your clothes around here. I'm helping you make sure you understand what your job is and the rules you got to follow in the law. Now, everything else I'm going to say is to help you do your job and yes. categorize it based on what the yeah. law is. Yeah. And then what I do in every case toward the beginning of close, after I talk to the jurors about what their job is and what they're going to be asked to do, the first thing I do is I'll go through some, the instructions and I spend a third of my time in the first part of closing argument going over the jury instructions. I do that probably about a third of the way through. I usually have a category right before that that I title prejudice the defendant <laughs> where I try to put forward. And I think that arms the jurors too, where I try to put forward, you know, the top four or five most outrageous, like things said in opening or throughout the case that I think have been unequivocally proven to be untrue. Or if somebody said something like, if you think that that's ridiculous. So I want to kind of create a framework before I get into the law and explaining why we should win of things that I at least hope several of the people on that jury had a little bit outraged about what the other side well, did. Well, you know what? That's a great point, Tim. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. one size doesn't fit all. Right. Okay? Different cases, different situations call for different approaches. You just got to think. You got to think through where you're at, what's going on. It reminds me of a case I had, and it was a defective product that was clearly defective. I had literally hundreds of prior incidents where people were injured or killed. And I was a younger lawyer and my clothes consisted of all of these blow up boards with documents and very damaging information that they'd already seen multiple times during the course of the case. And I had them all there up ready to go. And right at the last minute, I had this long outline rehashing all of the evidence and the facts. And I just punted it. I was just sitting there listening to the judge read the instructions. And I'm thinking to myself, this is crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's really crazy. The evidence was overwhelming. They didn't have a defense to it. They were just letting it happen and settling the cases. And I got up and really, you know, I'm not recommending this, but it was, was completely- Was wheel case? Yeah, it was completely or, unscripted. you said I was going to go through the evidence <laughs> with you and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, right. And so I did. And it was it was like genuine and heartfelt, but I, it was way off script. I didn't even pick up my outline. I think yeah. I just threw it back on the table and said, look, I put all of this stuff together. I was going to go through this, the instructions. I was going to go through all the evidence showing you why this is defective. And I said, I'm not going to do any of it. It's here. If you want it, ask us, send a note to the judge and tell them you want to look at these exhibits. But I said, this is a defective product. We know it. They know it at the other table. And you know it too. <laughs> you know. But it was a, a unique situation where I was convinced that everybody on that jury, for the most part, was convinced that it was a bad product and something should have been done about it. But that's what I did. And it was right in the beginning. Yeah. And then what I did is I skipped over the part of the instructions to talk about finding that the product's defective. And I said, now, let me tell you why we're really here. And it's called punitive, punitive damages. damages. Yeah. And I spent the next 20 minutes talking about deterrence and punishment and all of this. But back to going over the instructions, explaining the law. What I like to do is I like to go over the general instructions at some point in close. And by general instructions, I mean the burden of proof. In Missouri, you need nine or more. You don't need 12. Over in Illinois, we do work in Illinois. It's a unanimous, lot of in Illinois. just like federal court. Right. Illinois is like federal court where you need unanimous. And so pointing those things out. So what I'll do with the general instructions, I'll start out with burden of proof. 
more likely true than not true. And hopefully you've introduced that concept to the jury in voir dire and in opening and with some of your witnesses, it doesn't need to be beyond a reasonable doubt or absolute proof, just more likely than not. Well, and whatever party is putting forth something that they want the jury to believe has the burden of proof. Right. And that is a common problem that I think is misrepresented often in voir dire and throughout the case. Plaintiff has the burden of proof on everything. That's not true. I think the instruction makes clear whatever party is putting forth something, you know, if it's a defense, they have the burden of proof. So I point that out in the instruction too. And I always explain burden of proof and I put the instruction up, put it up on the screen, go over the elements, you know, I'll highlight the portions of it that I want to highlight nine or more. Also, I tell the jurors, look, if you get nine of you agree to a certain issue, move on to the next one. You're done with it. Let me ask you a question, John, and I don't know the answer to this. I'm aware of some attorneys in Missouri who believe and argue, and some who disagree with this, that it's only nine or more per issue. In other words, that the same nine who may agree to liability don't have to be the same nine that agree to a damages number. I think whatever the jury instruction says, you <laughs> get to it, argue it whichever way. Yeah. You know, as long as the instruction allows you to argue it, you can argue yeah, it. Yeah, I, well, I agree yeah. with that. And the instruction, it leaves leeway there. Right. And I've not gotten into that and made that specific argument. I think the jury, and based on reading the law, could draw that conclusion or not. But yeah. I, I know some lawyers who explicitly argue that. Yeah, and I think it'll, I mean, I've read it multiple, multiple times. I think it allows it, no yeah. question. So burden of proof, nine or more. The other thing, too, definition of negligence, whether you have a case against a company, a case against a physician, a case against a driver where you have maybe a different standard of care, not reasonable degree of care, but highest degree of care. Yeah. But I think it's good to go over the definition of negligence. I usually do. In med mal, I skip it sometimes. Why is that? Because it's such a wonky, like impossible to understand definition that I think jurors go like, I don't even know what this means. The way that works in Missouri is the jurors hear the instructions for the first time when the judge is reading the instructions and it's 10, 15 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes right of instructions. Yeah, right before close. And what that's doing is it's just overwhelming them with a bunch of information. And a lot of times they're told they will get a copy of the instructions to go back with them, but they don't have them in front of them while the judge is reading them. And I think they should. Yeah, and I ask that all the time. I don't think I've ever been denied that by a court where if you bring copies and you got them all ready to go and you say, judge, look, we've got 12 copies here or 15, you know, for the alternates and say, what we'd like to do is hand these out so that each juror has a copy of these instructions and we'd like to have them in their hand as you're reading them so that they can go through, they can make marks on them or highlights or whatever. That's a good idea. I haven't asked and, for that. Yeah, before. and they do. And what basis could any opposing party have? We don't want them to know the law. Yeah, we don't want them to be, <laughs> yeah, you know, I've had, them to be confused. I've, right, I've had defense attorneys agree with me on that. Their instructions are in there too. They want them in front of the jury. And then what I'll do when I start talking about the instructions as an intro, I'll say, look, you've been hit with a ton of information all at once. There's 20, 30, 40 pages of instructions. And I want to go through with you just some key ones that will be very helpful ones. for you. Right. Yeah. Not just important, but helpful to help you get through your job of what you need to do. I always, after I go over the general instructions, burden of proof, nine or more, negligence, I go over the verdict director. This is the case. This is the framing of the case. This is what you need to find to find in favor of my client, you know, that A, B, C, whatever it is. 
and I will go through each one, and then I will look at the evidence, the key evidence, in support of each one. You know, not rehashing every bit of evidence in the case. As an example, driving too fast for conditions or something like that. Well, there was an ice storm out. He knew about the ice storm before he got in his truck. This witness whose objective saw this and said that, yeah, just the main points. Right. The verdict director in your case is a great outline for your close in terms of getting the facts before the jury, you know, telling them what facts support each claim. And the other thing, too, is that's exactly what they're going to do. We take notes in Missouri. You know, jurors can take notes. And I will take my time and say, okay, on element one, I want to tell you three things and get them writing them down. You know, the defendant was driving too fast for conditions. Well, that was because of this, 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 and this. Were they negligent? Yes. And you list, you know, items so that they know which ones support each part of the claim. Basically show them how the evidence fits into the instruction. The other thing, big thing, is cover causation. I'll go through the general instructions, I'll go through the verdict director, but I pull out causation separately. And that's because in Missouri, as in a lot of jurisdictions, you don't need sole cause, only cause, it's contributed to cause. Yeah. And that's usually where the fight is in the trial anyway, on a lot of cases. Right. Oftentimes that is what almost the whole case is about. Right. And hopefully you've done a good job in voir dire, you've done a good job in opening, you've done it with your direct and cross-examination of the witnesses, really reinforcing contributed to cause. Yeah. And, you know, some people just aren't going to like that. And if you know throughout the whole trial, there has been suggestions at an empty chair defense or pointing at somebody else who there might be legitimate evidence that they were a big part of it. I'll get real close to the line of almost shaming jurors, trying not to make them dislike me while doing it. But look, I didn't write the law. You took an oath to follow it. You may not like it. You may think a lot of this was someone else. I'm here begging you, as the court has instructed you to do, to follow this law. You have to follow this law. It's contributed to cause. And if you can acknowledge in your mind that there was any contribution, you have to just move on then to the next element. The other thing that we do, and Tim, you and I have done this in many cases, where we have an issue of two possible causes, two different events, two different auto accidents, for instance. We have a case going on at the end of the month with two accidents that are eight months apart. And that's one of the issues in the case, what caused what. And what we will do, what we've done in the past, is we file a motion in limine preventing the defendant from making any argument other than we don't believe this incident was the sole cause. Yeah. Because they can't say, well, we don't think this caused it because they're really not following the law. They're misstating the law. And it's really a jury nullification issue. This didn't cause this. Well, that's not the law. Under the law, we don't need to show it caused it. We just need to show it contributed. I remember one case in particular, it was a med mal case. We argued that motion and it was a case out in rural Missouri. It was about a two and a half week case. We had a great judge. And right in the beginning, I think it was the first time that judge had ever been presented with that motion that you can't argue that our conduct didn't cause this because that's not the standard. You need to say our conduct didn't contribute. And we started arguing it and he wasn't really leaning our way in the beginning. And I said, judge, all we're asking is that they argue the instruction. And I pulled out the instruction And I said, at the end of the day, this is what the instructions, the law that will apply to the case. And he came around and said, you know, I agree. If you're going to argue something, you need to argue it within the language of what the law is going to be in the instruction. Yeah. I mean, you at least need to clarify it that this didn't cause this in any way or in any respect or contributed any way so that you can't be misleading about what the actual standard is. So again, you know, I use the instructions sort of as an outline because that's what the jury is going to be doing when they go through to deliberate. 
the elements of the case in the verdict director and then causation. And then finally, I pull up the damage instruction. And I do this in every case. I have the causation instruction, the damage instruction, and it's usually very broad. Any and all damages that you believe plaintiff sustained or is reasonably certain to sustain in the future. Reasonably likely. And then you talk about what that means. You know, it means what it means. Or there's another instruction that says to fairly and justly compensate the plaintiff for any and all damages you believe plaintiff sustained or is reasonably certain to sustain in the future. Uh What that means, what it doesn't mean, what it covers, what it doesn't cover. And it means any and all. I mean, it covers everything. And then it allows you to say, look, here are different categories of the types of damages, my client. I think you have a whole thing about this coming up about then how to present damages based on that instruction. Yeah. And I'll tell you the other thing, too, and this is a really, really good tip. And I think this is very effective, very useful. What I do, I call it the shortest path to a verdict. And every case that we have, basically, we've got multiple claims. There might be a strict product claim, a warning claim, a claim based on agency, a claim based on general negligence. So you may have a half a dozen or a dozen different claims in the case. And what I do is I pick the claim that is probably the strongest, the easiest, the clearest, the shortest. In other words, you don't need to prove each of them. You need to prove one of them, right? Yeah. And so what I do is I'll pick one where the evidence is like undisputed, very, very clear. If you guys get back there and you go straight to this one yes, and you can exactly. all agree on this one, you can move past liability. Right, exactly. And that's what I do. I pull <laughs> up be one done. of them and I say, now I'm going to give you a shortcut. Okay. Yeah. Save you all a bunch of time. Start with this one. I recommend that you start with this one. And under this one, you need to show A, B, and C. And then you move on to damages. And ladies and gentlemen, those really aren't disputed in this case. Okay. Figure out if you have one that is the strongest and it's really undisputed. And I do that to let them know, don't waste your time with the other ones. You're done. In other words, all these other ones you can pass up. This is the only one you need to find in favor of the plaintiff on. And then I assume not right away you wait till the end, but eventually you pull up the verdict form to explain how to fill it out. Yeah, and I do that. At Where the, to write the right. giant number on the right. big long it, line. But at the very <laughs> end, and you say, look, here's the form. Here's what you need to do. You write plaintiff, defendant, you check the box, whatever, write the or name fill in. fill out the and, percentages. And fill out the percentages and what you do. So you let them know all of that. Another thing that is critically important with instructions is it allows you to expose all of the BS non-legal defenses that have been raised in the case. Things that will be raised. I call them out-of-the-box defenses. Who will get the money? How will the money be paid? There might be a suggestion throughout the case, and not mine. This has happened multiple times where somebody's a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. They can't move, walk, yeah. and their what family's really taking care of them. Right. You're doing okay now. Family's taking care of you, things like that. That's a non-legal defense. You know, The instruction, the damage instruction doesn't say you to give the plaintiff what they need to get by you know, their current condition. Accepting that this dramatically changed their life. But what do they absolutely need right. now? It's, it's a way it against what they right. would it's, have had. It's to compensate them for what was taken, right. not just what they need to get by. In other or, words, you're giving something back to them. Right. And how many times, Tim, have you seen in cases where the person is catastrophically injured and the family obviously is taking care of them because they don't have any resources to do otherwise? And while the family's taking care of him, his wife has been a terrific support and she's taking care of his needs. It's half the cross-examination of every life care planner I've ever had. Well, I mean, the family's doing it. Is there any reason they can't keep doing it? Well, I mean, can the jury give the family money too? Like what? Yeah, no. And you can point out what the instruction, point out there's nothing in this instruction, this damage instruction that says 
give them full and fair compensation apart from what the family is currently can, providing. Can sacrifice right. to provide right. them it, on the road. It's just not in there. Yeah. The other thing too on liability, you may have a med mal case where throughout the case, it's the doctor was a wonderful doctor and had great credentials and was doing his or her best. And none of that, ain't none of that in the instruction. The question is, what did they do on this date? I include a common motion in limine in all med mal cases that has a list of those like the doctors doing their best, didn't do it on purpose. The whole reason we got into healthcare is we care about people is to try to eliminate that from the jump. They still fit it in. The doctor didn't do it on purpose. Right. You know, how's That's that for not jury even the nullification? Right. Well, it might you be know. now, but yeah. it didn't yeah. used to be. No, it's sometimes it gets so crazy. Yeah. If they get into that, money won't fix the problem. I think it allows you to start making punitive arguments, even if you don't have a punitive case. Money won't fix the problem. I mean, not giving any money means we're definitely not going to fix the problem. <laughs> Them paying money is the only thing that will fix the problem. And again, how do you phrase your damage argument? Look at the instruction. You know, the law requires you to compensate for the value of what was taken, not how they're doing now, how they're able to get by. The challenge is if anybody follows these instructions, it's difficult to put a dollar amount on things like your ability to walk, move your arms, mobility, freedom. And the reason it's difficult is because nobody wants to give those up. You know, those are the most important things in the world to us. But the instructions, I can't overemphasize the value of going over the instructions in closing argument. It allows you to explain to the jury how they can get their job done. You can help arm them. It's a good outline for how you want to present the evidence in close because it's what they're going to use. It allows you to expose jury nullification arguments, non-legal defenses. Again, the jury hadn't heard that yet. So now they're like, ah, okay, I know what we need to do. Mm -hmm. So the first thing, Tim, we talked about was arming favorable jurors. The next thing we talked about, the second thing was explaining the law with the use of the jury instructions. And the third thing that we talked about in the beginning was, you know, engaging the jurors. Okay. And what, what do I mean by that? As a young lawyer, I looked at what happened to my client and I always looked past that. I looked at not what happened, but I wanted to find out why did it happen? Why did this happen is just as important, if not more important than what happened. You know, if it's a truck driver who is speeding, if it's somebody who runs through a red light that they've been behind the wheel for 12 hours or somebody who's being rushed to deliver packages a certain amount of time or somebody in an emergency room who goes in and diagnosis is missed because they've got one doctor on staff and 60 people in the emergency room. And usually when you look at that, why did it happen? That leads you to the next issue of, is the problem still there? Is the yeah. problem fixed? And I think that's when I talk about engaging the jurors, that's what the system is about. I mean, the system that we have, the tort system is not just to compensate, but it's also a system of deterrence, making sure it doesn't happen again. Anybody. It, that is the purpose right. of the tort system. If right. you go back and look at like early cases, there's U.S. Supreme Court cases the purpose of the tort system is to create community safety standards so that it makes the community safer by putting the burden of paying for what happened upon those who can fix it. Right. If you know that if you're driving too fast and injure someone, you have to pay for it. You might not drive so fast. You might not drive so fast. Okay. <laughs> right. It's accountability. That's what it is. It's a deterrence effect when there's accountability. No yeah. question. If you know you are making a car that you know the engine will explode if you get rear-ended, whether or not you might have to pay a billion dollars in lawsuits might make a difference in whether you recall that car. Yeah, and I think part of this is when I say engage the jurors, it's not a particular moment in the close or a particular moment in the case, but I think you need to frame and weave this in that there's a bigger purpose also. Why what the defendant did, the defendant's conduct puts everyone in danger. One of the cases you and I tried was an opioid case against an individual provider in a hospital 
And part of the argument I remember we made in the case was when the defendant doctor was on the stand who had overprescribed massive amounts of opioids, one of the points that came out was, well, doctor, this patient, as well as your other patients, are driving. Yeah. I mean, they're driving automobiles in our community. They have to drive to your office and drive back and forth to work. You're letting the jury know this isn't the only time this has happened, nor will it be the only time it will happen if things don't change. Yeah. Conduct like this puts us all at risk. You know, an unfinished recall. I've had several product cases involving recalls where they do a recall and the company, the manufacturer that does the recall, knows affirmatively that, you know, 20% of the vehicles haven't been recalled and haven't been fixed. They're still out there. Yeah. And they stop. They just don't do it anymore. They send out a notice and that's the end of it. These are not golden rule arguments. These are not arguments of put yourself in the plaintiff's shoes because you could be hurt. These are legitimate arguments that in deciding the reasonableness of the conduct of the defendant and whether it was too dangerous, you have to look at how much they were putting the public in general at risk and danger of being harmed. They're right. legitimate what, arguments about the reasonableness of their conduct. The reasonableness of the conduct is dependent in part on the dangerousness right. of the conduct. And the tentacles period. of that danger. Yes. And so I think you have to point that out. I mean, you have to point out how this conduct endangers others other than just your client right. in order to show that the conduct is unsafe and negligent. We had a case recently, it was an automotive product case where the evidence in the case, it was unbelievable that there was a certain model of vehicle and they have certain internal tests. It was a fuel system case, post-collision fire. And the documentation that we ended up getting through the course of discovery showed us that they had subjected this model vehicle to their own internal test for post-collision fires and they couldn't get it to pass. I mean, they tried it three or four times and it failed every single time. They made modifications, three different modifications, computer modeling, it still failed. And so then they used some type of excuse or criteria where they said that according to their quote, engineering judgment, they allowed it to pass, which was really bullshit. But the next year's model, the newer model, year or two later came out. And guess what? They we, we stopped yeah. even doing the test. We, they didn't do it, right? <laughs> they didn't do the test anymore. Big shock. And so basically we have several hundred thousand models of these vehicles out there that by their own internal standards are admittedly defective because they can't pass their own internal standards. We had testimony from the corporate rep in that case that you would never sell a vehicle that didn't pass your own internal safety standards, correct? And to try to defend that in lawsuits, they decided, well, darn, for this next model, we don't want to have to come in if we get sued and say it failed our tests. So let's just stop doing, doing it, right? <laughs> and so pointing that out and just what we talked about, I mean, if you're on a jury and you say, well, okay, these cars are still out on the road, how many of them are out there? So Again, give them some skin in the game. Yeah. Why the case is important to them, why it's important to their families, why defendant's conduct puts everybody in danger. I had a case with the, it was a FedEx case, a delivery case. And the evidence in the case that, you know, the driver failed to yield, hit my client, serious injuries. And one of the issues, really, the driver was a nice guy, really good guy. And we took his deposition and we found out that they loaded him down with like 125 deliveries. He had to complete them all the same day. He had to load his truck by himself, didn't get a lunch break. He got paid for each delivery. And so they created a financial incentive for him to you know, do it in a hurry, do it fast. I think he had 125 deliveries on the truck. The accident happened at about 1030 in the morning and he was on his 30th delivery. Started at six or seven in the morning. And so jury hears that and they're like, wow, these are FedEx trucks out there. And, you know, if he's doing it this way, other drivers are doing it this way. And what I did is I knew the zip codes of some of the jurors based on the county we're in. And this driver they had commercial and then residential. And he had residential deliveries. And I had him go through each zip code that he was in. 
And I could just see the eyes of the jurors like, oh, it's 63113. Ah, <laughs> that's mine. <laughs> yeah, right. And they're like, whoa, you know, it's my delivery. And I said, so you're going through neighborhoods, correct? Yes. Residential neighborhoods. And let's talk about the zip codes. And again, it gives the jurors a bigger purpose than just compensating your client. And as you noted, Tim, that's in every case. It's inherent yeah. in every case. The dangerousness of the conduct has to be evaluated to determine whether or not the conduct's appropriate or not. Yeah. There are cases where a company might not test a particular product. You're dealing with one product they don't test, but focus on not just the fact that they didn't test a particular product, but just the whole corporate testing attitude of not testing, right? Testing yeah. practices and procedures. Any type of case, you need to get into any kinds of policies and procedures or lack thereof. Yeah. Whether it's a med mal case at a big medical institution or hospital, do they have policies and procedures? about this, and then you can look into whether they were violated or they just don't have any. And maybe if they did, that could solve it. Product liability cases, all kinds of policies and procedures. Like I think almost any type of case, except like a private citizen who's just driving on their own time in a car accident again. That's, yeah, and, that's and, the and Tim, you know, the other side, the flip apply. side of that too, if you're defending the case and you're being charged, your employee or your company's being charged with negligence, you have every right and obligation to show that what they were doing was reasonable, that what they're doing didn't cause danger and harm to your client or others and yeah. why we do it, why it's safe. And for the plaintiff to not be able to respond to that, it's kind of crazy. You know, yeah. the issue in the case is the dangerousness of the conduct. It's all part of the equation, whether you have punitive damages pled or not. And I think what it does is it gets the jurors interested. It gets them focused. It gives them some purpose in the case beyond just compensating your client, exposing the defendant's general attitude towards safety. I think that's a general way to put it. As I said, the big three things are you want to arm your favorable jurors. You want to go through the law, the instructions, explain it in detail, how it works, what it says, highlight the important instructions, and then you want to engage them. You want to enlist the jurors. You want to motivate them. And, you know, you've motivated them and you've armed them. You've given them some motivation to get to the right verdict and you've given them instructions on how to get there. Okay. Well, we thank you for listening. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. We hope you join us next time. We're going to continue our discussion about closing argument, kind of narrowing our focus into how to present damages depending on the type of case and different ideas for that. So this has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon, and we'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.